Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, 5, January 2024. We're going to do lecture number two in Ethanol is a Neurotoxin lecture series. And what I noticed when I was going through um, the statistics on the last couple of lectures was that almost twice as many people seem to have downloaded the ethanol lecture as opposed to the most uh, the two most recent leukotriene lectures. Now that makes me feel a little bit sad, I guess, because leukotrienes are authentic lipids, and you know I think that uh, that's a more robust lecture for you know what we normally try to do in biochemistry, authentic biochemistry podcast lectures. But I'm also glad that it seems that uh, there's some interest in um, learning more about ethanol as a neurotoxin. So I'm really glad to uh, continue this series. So let's do chapter number two. Okay, so we were talking about mean diffusivity. That's called MD. And we have already established that chronic ethanol consumption increases mean diffusivity in brain parenchyma. And this has been shown in the rat model. We're going to talk about that rat model in more detail here uh, this afternoon, as well as in humans. Now, between 7 to 8 gram per kilogram ethanol in humans is considered the blood alcohol level normally reached after the consumption of four standard drinks in one hour. That is a legally intoxicating dose. Now, under those conditions, that's a great deal of uh, alcohol. An alcohol that is an ethanol-induced brain-wide mean diffusion increase in the grain matter is observed. And remember when you get that increase in MD, in mean diffusion, that's bad because it's diluting the activity of the neurotransmitters. But that's the measure. Um, the readout of that measure. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a um, another aspect of how this work is done. And it's a mathematical geometric measure of what is known as tortuosity. And it gets the um, Greek letter tau for um, its designation. I'll explain to you what tortuosity is in a moment. Now, let me get into some detail about how this is explained at the biophysical level. So you have porous materials, and you can generate porous materials such as a membrane and a ventricle in the central nervous system. And that will comprise two phases. You have a solid phase, and then you have the pore volume, okay, which essentially would be the porosity of the membrane, where neurotransmitters are moving, where water is fluxing, giving you that mean diffusivity, and where ethanol plays a role. Okay. Now, the two phases, the solid phase and the pore volume, are not distributed evenly. So that results in the central nervous system in a complex media. So porous media are usually constituted by 
a solid skeletal structure called the matrix, and then those pore spaces. And combined, that's called the pore network. And that's one way of understanding the brain, particularly moving from one nucleus of the central nervous system to the next. So porous materials can be classified actually into three different categories according to their pore diameter. Microporous, which are smaller than 2 nanometer. Mesoporous, which is 2 to 50 nanometer. And macroporous, which is greater than 50 nanometer in diameter. All three of those porous uh, classifications can be found in the central nervous system. Some unique microstructural descriptors um, allow us to characterize that porous media. And so porosity, specific surface area, and correlated functions like pore size distribution, as well as constrictivity and the one I wanted to explain to you, tortuosity, are all parameters to describe porous materials, such as describing a membranous network in the central nervous system. Okay. Now, tortuosity is a singular parameter, and it's used to characterize the flow path within a porous medium. And that, when you get that uh, metric, that gives you some idea of the media's complexity, and it allows you to quantify the flux resistance of the structure during the event of movement through the porous material. So, so it's all about an event of Tortuosity is a measure of the event of movement through a porous material that is complex. And it's typically correlated with directly porosity, as you might guess. But it's also linked to the other parameters, depending on how the phenomena is measured. So there are many different types of tortuosity. <laughs> There's electrical, hydraulic, diffusive, and then basic mathematical geometrical. So geometrical tortuosity is a metric that emphasizes the microstructure configuration. And it focuses specifically on that geometric flow. Remember we're talking about isotropic and anisotropic flow. Anisotropic flow is what occurs in the white matter. This is where ethanol has its most toxic neurotoxic effect. That's why I'm giving you all this detail. Okay. And when you measure this tortuosity, it allows you to look at changes in the microstructure. And it can also give you an idea of the electrochemical transmission through the system during its performance phase of neurotransmission, in the case of the brain. Okay. And it can even give you some idea of how that microporosity changes within 
boundary layers. All of this is really important, obviously, for measuring diffusivity in the central nervous system, where the proximal association of the neurotransmitters in that flow becomes an important metric, not only quantitatively, but qualitatively, when understanding how neurotransmission can be affected by such neurotoxins as ethanol. Okay. So the mathematical definition of geometric tortuosity, which is called tau, T-A-U, the Greek letter, or dao, if you want to call it that. So dao geometric is LG over L. Very simple. And L is the shortest route length of the porous materia. And, and LG, which is a numerator, is the mean of the length of the effective route. Okay. So the, the parameter then basically is just the length of a straight line between the inlet and the outlet of the porous material. Okay. So that's what tortuosity is measured as. Right? So you see how it's related to diffusivity because it's discussing the length of the porous material affected by the alteration of the flow dynamics. Okay. So again, I'm giving you this information so that you understand um, how these studies are done. So remember, we're looking at chronic ethanol consumption. And one of the premises that is um, examined in this study is that chronic ethanol consumption decreases tortuosity in the extracellular compartment. So that means it's going to have an effect on that geometric space that's going to be transversed by that event. Okay. In this case, neuro neurotransmitters. So the test of alcohol increased the diffusivity of the released neurotransmitters in that, remember what it is, extracellular space, the ECS. They used a technique called real-time iontophoresis. And this allows them to measure the diffusion within the cortex using a tracer. The tracer, I already mentioned to you, is, is tetramethylammonium cation, TMA+, plus, tetramethylammonium cation. And it's injected directly into the ECS by a current pulse. So then you can calculate what the volume occupied by the extracellular space obtains. So you then get an extracellular space volume fraction. And that's known as the alpha, ECS alpha. So that geometrical factor tortuosity, uh, remember tau, is representative concentration giving you a time profile in the response to the iantophoretic pulse using, again, TMA plus diffusion, okay? TMA, remember, is tetramethylmonium cation, okay? There's a reason why they use the cation, 
I'm not going to get into that detail, but obviously it has to do with the polarity of the system. Okay. Now, using that metric, tortuosity, TMA plus diffusion curves. When I say TMA plus diffusion curves, I don't mean plus the diffusion. I mean TMA plus, meaning it's a cation. Using that metric, one month alcohol drinking induced significant changes in the ECS properties. They observed a significant decrease in the cortical ECS volume fraction and an associated very strong significant decrease in the tortuosity in the alcohol drinking group. So what those results suggest that there is there's a consistency of the effect of alcohol on that extracellular space that essentially increases the mean diffusivity. How does it do it? Ethanol eliminates the barrier for diffusion. What does that mean? It corrupts membrane selective porosity. See? It destroys the membrane. So any major reduction in tortuosity, together with reduction in the ECS volume fraction, suggests that alcohol ethanol induced increase in volume transmission. So released neurotransmitters will be diluted less the, as they reach farther into the extracellular space. You see? So there's going to be an there's going to be a dilution and a concentration effect here. As the neurotransmitters move through the ECS because of the change in porosity associated with the ethanol as measured by tortuosity. Okay? I think I put that together uh, correctly. Now, when I say something, now this, this is again in animal models, right? Because you're injecting this. Now, these kinds of studies are done on animal models in the NIH and in the, in the uh, ethanol institutes. Why? It's because you can't do these kinds of experiments in humans, obviously. But, Many of the metrics we're talking about here line up pretty well between the human um, who has consumed chronically ethanol throughout their life and the rat model they use, okay, in terms of histology, in terms of all the biomarkers we're going to start getting into. Does that mean there's a direct correlation? No. It means that when we look at the rat model, which we think is a pretty good model, for chronic ethanol abuse, even some of the behavioral changes in this rat model suggest that as well, at least it gives some indicator to the research community of what ethanol is doing in the central nervous system. Okay. Now, there is, of course, scanning done in human brains, and there is an examination of mean diffusivity in the white track, and we told you about that already. This can be done. So there are, there's, the, the work that's done in the clin clinical studies correlate very well with the rat studies. That's what I'm telling you. doesn't mean they're identical. It just means they correlate very well. So what are these rats again? I wanted to explain them to you because they're interesting. They're genetically selected, and they're known as Marchigian sardinian rats. 
the MSP rats. They were selected for their, so they're selected, so they're not genetically altered, they're just selected within a population of rats. And they're selected because they have a high ethanol preference. And they've been working on this particular <laughs> MSP rat phenotype up to 18 years of study. And that was back in 2006 when it first was described as a good model for ethanol diffusivity in the central nervous system. So they'd gone through over 13 different generations of the Sardinian alcohol preferring SP rats, which were originally developed in the Department of Neuroscience in Cagliari, Italy. Okay. Then they did 20 more generations of selective breeding in Camerino, Italy, and that's when they finally renamed the animal population the MSPs. Okay. Now, first publication on the alcohol preferring line breed was carried out at the University of Camerino, and that came way back out in 1991. From 1991 to the mid-2000s, there were over 40 papers published. Now there's over 300 papers published using this model, okay? Because I'm reporting here on the paper from 2006, I can tell you, it's very, very well described in the literature, okay? And they say they believe they have a good phenotype of these MSP rats that validates them as a very good animal model. Okay, so that's all I want to tell you about the detail there about that. Now let's go back and talk about central nervous system. Astrocytes. Okay, we've gone through this before in authentic biochemistry, but I'm going through it again because we're talking about ethanol. They're just one type of glial cells in the CNS. So you have glial cells, and then you have neurons. These are not neurons, right? And these astrocytes in the CNS also includes resident and perivascular microglia. These are the other types of glial cells. Resident and perivascular microglia, oligodendrocytes, radioglia, and the Muller cells. Okay, so these are all different types of glial cells. So astrocytes are just one type. Now, it's suggested that astroglia are the most abundant cell type overall, including neurons in the brain. And what astroglia apparently do, and when I say apparently, is because the studies go, are ongoing, but we're pretty confident that astroglia provides structural and functional support for the neuron. And involvement includes neurotransmitter glutamate recycling, and indeed trophic factor release. So astrocytes, also known as astro astroglia, are characterized by the presence of a unique structural protein. This is why I'm giving you this detail, because they're going to be measuring these proteins with immunostaining in the ethanol studies that's going to follow. So the protein that's most unique for astrocytes is the glial fibrillary acidic protein, a GFAP. Okay. 
GFAP is known to be present in non-myelinating Schwann cells. And you know, Schwann cells are in the peripheral nervous system. You also see GFAP in the enteric glia and in the um, overall enteric nervous system. Okay. So, GFAP mutations are measured because these are important not only as biomarkers, but they might give some indication of alterations of cytoskeletal structure functional relationships. And in fact, even give us some idea about astrogliosis, which is inflammation of the astroglia. Okay? So that's why GFAP is used. It's also known as a dominant autoantigen following TBI, traumatic brain injury. So there's a lot of work done on GFAP. I'm telling you about GFAP now because we're going to see that's going to be one of the markers examined. Okay? Let me move on here. Now, let's talk more a little about T two-weighted MRI, T2-weighted magnetic resonance imaging, white matter hyperintensities are a common feature of damaged and, interestingly, aging brain. So these are known as white matter lesions, or WMLs, and they're classified according to their location with periventricular lesions found in the white matter next to the ventricle where the ethanol plays a role. Now you also get deep subcortical lesions. These are DSCLs and they occur within what's known as the centrum semi-ovale. So these DSCLs are found in about 60% of the human population over 65. And the more DSCL, remember what these are, these are these deep subcortical lesions, the more is linked to progressive cognitive decline and, interestingly, major depressive disorder. Now, the causes overall of white matter lesions, which happen in damage caused by ethanol, aging, and other kinds of damage that can happen to the brain, such as infection, which is far more rare. But the causes of WML, white, ma white matter lesions, suggest that the blood-brain barrier is somehow uh, dysfunctional. You also get axonal damage, obviously, and cerebral hypoperfusion. And those three markers contribute to the pathogenesis. Okay. Blood-brain barrier dysfunction, axonal damage, and cerebral hypoperfusion. Uh, so white matter lesions are associated with myelin loss, obviously. BBB dysfunction, blood-brain barrier dysfunction, and an increase, here we get into now, reactive glia, including the presence of swollen, 
fibrinogen positive clasmatodendritic astrocytes along with an increase in the microglial response, which is pro-inflammatory. Now, you know, because you've listened to my lectures over the years and months leading up to this small subset of lectures, but you know that microglia are the most significant immune cell, resident immune cell in the CNS. And because they're immune cells, they're very closely related to macrophages, right? I mean, we talk about how they they are their resident during brain development, much like we talked about the alveolar macrophages in the lung during lung development in utero. Same kind of uh, developmental process for these cells. These microglia obviously express uh, cytokines, chemokines, uh, matrix metalloproteinases, just like every uh, macrophage would do. And they're responsible for those different protein secretions are responsible for some of the microglial function. So microglia are classified just like macrophages, M1, which is pro-inflammatory, and M2, which is more to do with cleaning up cellular debris, and they're considered non-inflammatory, and sometimes anti-inflammatory. Okay. However, just like with the macrophage polarity, M1, M2, there's a great deal of, um, within the spectrum of those two poles, of microglia, very much a uh, contribution of different microglial subtypes, okay, which seem to vary between pro-inflammatory to non-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory. Right. So this obviously has to do with what? Alterations in gene expression. But also, interestingly, in morphology. So under physiological conditions, again, we've talked about this uh, not that long ago. So I'm, I'm, re I'm reflecting on that. Um, microglia appear uh, resting and ramified with an extended process that orbits around the microglia. And that those processes are always sensing the brain microenvironment. For like surveilling, just like my um, uh, macrophages do. And what are they surveilling for? Any change in gene expression, in the neuron, in the astrocyte, or in the microglia, or in any resident-associated um, fluid that is being exchanged between those different cell types in the CNS. Right? So that what's going on with that surveillance of these microglia is to examine whether or not there is some kind of damage going on, right? Now, if that damage occurs, that means the microglia will do what? They'll become activated. But you know that the morphological differences, like the ramified that we just talked about, are not the only thing that tell you about microglial function, just like with macrophages themselves, sense restrictive. So what, what does that mean? That means we have to look at microglial markers. And there are some of these, particularly those that are associated with deep subcortical lesions and the surrounding white matter environment, all linked to the damaged brain where the micro, uh, 
glial response in both the periventricular lesions and the DSCLs are going to be differentially segregated. Okay. So the PVL, the periventricular lesions, contain high levels of activated microglia expressing MHC class 2, matrix grabability complex 2 proteins, and co-stimulatory molecules like B72 and CD40, along with another protein called mini chromosome maintenance protein 2, that's MCM2. Now, all of that in the PVL phenotype, pathophenotype, suggests a more immune-activated and even proliferative permissive environment within the PVL. Yes. Contrast, the DSCL, okay? Remember now that we're looking at two different possible white matter lesions. That's the whole reason we're differentiating these two, right? So in the DSCL, you see low levels of MHC class 2 microglia, but you see high levels of CD68 positive microglia. And they now change morphology, they're amoeboid. Okay? So you have morphological changes, you have protein expression changes. So CD68 is a transmembrane glycoprotein. It's expressed by human monocytes and tissue macrophages. And when it's found in monocytes and macrophages, it indicates phagocytic activity, okay? So that suggests that within the DSCL, okay, within that system of pathophysiology, uh, phagocytic microglia are more likely involved in the removal of the, in, and then uh, de destruction of any of the degraded 